Hello folks, this is Dom Flemons, the American songster, and you're talking on the talking blues. And the talking blues is one of those blues that you can't lose, and everything that you choose will go everywhere that you want to. But don't snooze, because we've got the talking blues. And good to be with you. So I'm talking to you in Washington, D.C. right now? Is that what you said? Yeah, right, well, I'm, I'm based out of Washington, D.C., but we're currently talking in the Chicago area. I'm, I'm just uh, sort of traveling between places at the moment. It's been one of these sort of interesting times where um, a lot of the work has been in the Midwest at the moment. And how are you finding traveling these days? Ultimately, I found the traveling to be more or less the same for me personally. But that's because I have a very small setup when it comes to a traveling entourage. It's myself, my wife, and my daughter. And so we travel in one vehicle, and we're always very uh, sanitary and very clean when we're traveling from one place to the other because, of course, when you're on tour, you don't want to get sick in general. So we're always very conscious of those sort of things. So traveling hasn't been much different for us, but it's definitely been a, a huge change. I mean, a huge technological change as well as the whole restructuring of life as we know it. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, do you take your family on the road with you when you're doing gigs? Every single gig. Um, there have been just a few occasions where my wife and my daughter have not been with me on the road. Um, and my daughter's been with us since uh, she was three weeks old. Um, yes, and um, this pandemic and the shutdown has actually been the first time we've had time in a singular household with, uh, with our daughter for a while, which has been good for us ultimately because we have been on the road since she was born. So we've been if there was a silver lining that's something for us that we found but yeah we've always been on the road together can, can i ask how old your daughter is she is now two and a half she's going to be three in february okay so she doesn't really understand the road experience N <laughs> no you know and back when i was touring in the the old group with the carolina chocolate drops you know my singing partner Rin, and she had her children on the road so i i had some impression of what children on the road would look like and when i met my wife uh, we talked about it and as we went along uh, one of the things with children is they're not worried about the locations and moving around because they're too young to really have yeah. a sense of home but uh, there's a certain point where they just start that you know you have to mom and dad are the are the our home and so we have to just adjust and figure out ways to make sure that our living situation and and she's comfortable with what she's doing and and that's been good you know so we visit family a lot so we tend to take big trips to go visit family so so how different is it from what you imagined it would be to what it is Oh, well, I mean, the best part about it is uh, it's actually been uh, very fulfilling and very enjoyable in a way that I, I wouldn't have known beforehand. Yeah. And that, that's just been wonderful in of itself. And, and the fact that I've been able to take my daughter all over the world before she was three years old, she has a sense of all these different cultures, and she's also a... a very excited about listening to music. She like li likes listening to my music now. She can kind of uh, go onto the iPad and pull up a, my album now and listen to my music. Or she'll um, every once in a while I'll let her look at a playlist that I'm working on and she'll flip through the songs and find the ones she likes and things like that. Wow, it's been it's been really great. Even uh, you know the the single "Shake Your Money Maker" that I just did with my friend Rev Payton and Steve Cropper. That was one of my daughter's favorite songs coming up. So even when I co-hosted the Blues Hall of Fame uh, leading up to wanting to record the single, uh, it was one of my daughter's favorite songs, so it was kind of in the forefront of my mind just because of her natural interest, like when she's laying in the crib and she starts shaking and stuff. So it's been really fun. You know, those type of things are, are what have really made it the most enjoyable for me, is just seeing her learn and, and grow. Yeah, yeah. So when was that single recorded? That was recorded in December of 2019. Okay. Uh, so I co-hosted the the Blues Hall of Fame Awards for the Blues Foundation last right. year, and I, I uh, amongst everything, that Booker T and the MGs as a whole group was inducted into the Hall of Fame, the St. Louis Blues by Bessie Smith, yeah. as well as uh, Shake Your Moneymaker, and then the Sky is Crying LP that Bobby Robinson, another Blues Hall of Famer, produced for Elmore James. And so... Uh, 
kind of sort of in serendipity, uh, Reverend Peyton, he had been invited to do the All-Star Jam at the end of the uh, Blues Awards themselves, and he decided to do Shake Your Money Maker because he had a 1952 Supro guitar like Elmore James had on those recordings. And so he decided to lead the jam that way. So it ended up being a perfect moment where everybody came together, and I, I had sung it, and I sing it Elmore James's way, so I like to... I, I like to get into blues jams and sing it like that because it's sort of a slightly different style of singing. And, and so in the course of this jam, uh, we had little Stevie Van Zant, Steve Cropper, and Rev Payton doing a, a triple guitar, I mean, just mashup that was just fantastic. And it was like a 20, it was a 25 person jam and everybody from Vanessa Collier to Kevin Burt, uh, I mean, it was, it was a, a jam of jams, you know, right. it was the, the whole blues foundation. So. I mean, we were just all so hyped up after the jam that my wife and I and my manager, we were sitting there, and I told him, I said, we need to make this into a record, because I saw how Cropper and Rev and Little Stevie were working off each other, and sadly, if we, we weren't able to get Little Stevie, I, I hope maybe next time we can work with him and, and, and do something, because uh, I just saw how that rhythm section was uh, doing some amazing things um, with slide guitar and finger style electric blues guitar, you know, it just was beautiful, and so... Uh, we had been working and talking about doing something at Sun Studios for a while. And so it's like as Rev Payton comes off and says, man, that was a great jam, uh, you know, we just decide, hey, let's cut this at Sun Records. And so we just decided to do it. We didn't have any big plans for it or anything, but Rev Payton and I have known each other since 2007. We met at the Joshua Tree Festival, and I always loved their sound. They, they love my music and my sound, and we've just been friends forever and, you know, um, gone on tour many different times. And this was the first time we were able to actually get into the studio. And so it just ended up being great, and so... Um, we wanted to get Steve Cropper, so we just called him up, and he said, of course, and came down from Nashville. And, and then we had Scott Sutherland come down from, I think he's over in Des Moines, Iowa. Right. But he was playing such solid bass on the jam, I just said, let's just get Scott Sutherland to come down. And yeah, between Rev Payton's big damn band, Cropper, uh, Scott, and myself, that was a, a beautiful little lineup, and we just decided to make it a real easy, punchy dance record for everybody to listen to and enjoy. This recording, did you do it live off the floor? or? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. It, this one here, what's funny about it is that Sun Records is built in such a way, Sam Phillips created it so that you have a, a standard studio setup, but then there's a second echo chamber room that Sam Phillips developed to create that distinctive Sun Records echo double slap effect, so you almost have a... Yeah, yeah. Behind your your vocal, and so they have it set up in such a way so that you can add more Sun Records effect or less Sun Records <laughs> effect on every track you've you've recorded. So you can actually sort of play with the reverb as you wish. And so afterward, uh, uh, Rev uh, Rev and I talked about what we were looking to do in terms of sound production, and then Rev uh, jumped into the studio and and started working with the engineer to master that into. Um, to the wonderful single you hear now. That's an interesting project. Yeah, it just ended up being a, a great thing to do. And of course, as, a, as the co-host of the Blues Hall of Fame Awards, it amazed me when I became involved with the Blues Foundation how many quintessential blues records had not been honored by the foundation so far. But I found that there are so many records that have been created that are quintessential blues records that even if they were to give two times the number of awards, they still would be behind. And then that wouldn't even include any contemporary or living blues artist or records that are of note. And so it's, uh, it was one of those things where I really wanted to create support for the Blues Foundation as well as um, uh, create support for the Roots music community and, and the way that it's inter, uh, inter mixed within folk music, blues, bluegrass, and early jazz, and all those different things. And then, of course, early rock and roll as well. Because um, I, I had uh, my jug, I play the stonemason jug, as, as many folks know, and Steve Cropper laughed when he saw my jug over in the studio, and he said, he said, you know, back in 63 when I 
recorded with Gus Cannon. What sort of mic did we use on the jug? What mic did we use on the jug? And he just started laughing to himself, <laughs> trying to figure out if he used the ribbon mic uh, on uh, on the jug or if he used something else, a more directional mic. But it was uh, he got a good laugh out of that. And so those little moments, again, for, uh, beside musical moments, we also had a, a lot of wonderful personal moments because Rev and I are also big fans of Sun Records and everything that they produced. So And, and then Steve Cropper is, yeah, yeah. you know, for guys who were born in the 1980s, Steve Cropper is one of the guitar gods of guitar gods and, um, for every type of music. So we were just so thrilled. Well, it must have been amazing to be there with Steve. Like, how cool is that? Absolutely. And I, and I loved his method in the studio, too. He, we went over all of the sessions. And if you see the pictures and stuff, Rev ran over the arrangement that we had worked out. And Steve kind of sat back after a while and shook his head. And he said, all right, I'm done talking. Let's, once we start playing, that's when the magic happens. And that was, he said, that's how it's been since the beginning. So I, I also loved that he, as a uh, Southern music tradition bearer, still held to the, the tradition that you find in a lot of traditional music and, and different types of music outside of popular music, where uh, once the music begins, that's when the, the magic happens, whether it's tone or whether it's a riff or whether it's a, a solo. It, that's when the magic really starts to happen. So he... He was just ready to go, and I mean, he was a star right from the beginning. And, and the session was only about two and a half, three hours long, because we only did one song. Right. So it was, it was also done very short, very quickly, and very efficiently. So speaking of getting into music, tell me about how you first got into music. Well, I began to really take notice of music after I saw a, the documentary, The History of Rock and Roll, when it... It came on, uh, I think it was on, it might have been on PBS, but I think it was on regular TV. Uh, this was maybe in the mid-90s, 1995, 6, 7. How old were you? I was around 16 or 17 years old, so I was a prime target for rock and roll. And uh, the documentary uh, presented artists to me that were of interest, like everything from Louis Jordan and Johnny Otis to Muddy Waters, Helen Wolf, Elvis... Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, um, uh, Rufus Thomas, uh, The Beatles, and uh, it went all the way up to uh, hip-hop and the beginning of hip-hop as a popular music. And for me, one of the episodes I kept going back to was, was one called Plugging In, and the theme went from the, the, the village in uh, uh, Greenwich Village in, all the way to... Um, uh, to the Monterey Pop Festival and the transition of the folk revival going all the way into the electric psychedelic rock movement. And I just loved watching this episode. And in the folk revival episode, they had um, uh, uh, they had film of uh, Bob Dylan, of course, uh, at the Newport Folk Festival, but also Lightning Hopkins, Phil Oaks, Judy Collins, Ramblin' Jack Elliott. And, and I just started getting deep into this style of music and and I at the time the public library had every single recording of all of these musicians or the local record stores had all of these records and before the vinyl resurgence you could buy these records for two or three dollars so as a, a a kid that didn't necessarily have a lot of money for new records I I just went to the record stores and started finding a lot of um, beautiful music that was you know, just wasn't very expensive, but, you know, when I began to listen to things like Jim Croce or Leonard Cohen, compared to the pop music of the time, which was Limp Bizkit or Britney Spears or whatever, uh, it was it was a different type of music that, um, it, it spoke to me in a different way, and so I began to start learning the guitar after that. I was always drawn to lyrics and, and poetry, and I did spoken word poetry for many years, and, and that got me into the beat poets, and um, you know, Jack Kerouac, Ferlinghetti, Allen Ginsberg, or uh, Amiri Baraka, or any, any number of the poets, and Langston Hughes, and the, and by the time I went through college, I was, I was studying English, and studying Ch Chaucer, and Shakespeare, and all these, this ancient literature, and I was moonlighting at the, the college record, record library, where they had all the great folk records, and so I started to listen and learn. And how, how easy was learning? How easy did playing the instruments and learning about folk music come to you? I think in one regard, because I started out playing the drums, playing the banjo and the guitar 
It didn't come to me easily, but once I got a sense of how I wanted to play the instruments, I began to develop a style that was my own. And the more I got into the older music and I got into the blues and the early music of the 1920s and 30s, I began to find that a lot of the performers also had just developed their own style. And I wanted to try to figure out a way to be able to not only play one style, but I wanted to play six and seven styles so that when I presented my music, uh, the audience would never know how many styles I could play. And I, and I play quite a few more than even the ones that I've presented in my shows. So I, I always liked that idea. And later on when I met Mike Seeger, I found that that was something that I should continue to pursue. And I started to do it in a multi multitude of other ways after I, did, I was in college. Okay, so how did you come up with the... So you said you, you had an idea of what style you wanted to pursue or create. Like I, it's a it's a concept that's not. I I, I have, I'm having a little hard time grasping how how that happens. How does that happen? Well, one of the ways that I I found that I was able to focus in on how I wanted to present my music was when I was around 18 years old. I started to go to the local folk festivals in Phoenix, Prescott, Flagstaff, and Tucson, Arizona because I'm originally from Phoenix, Arizona. Right. Uh, I was born and raised there. And at those local festivals, I met a lot of musicians who came from different parts of the country, and they all presented different styles of folk music. And every week there would be a three-act show that I would go to. And so I did this from the moment that I still needed to get back by 10 o'clock for curfew for my parents all the way until <laughs> college when I still was visiting and then going to the yearly folk festival. So I learned two skills. I learned how to lead a song and then I learned how to jam and play behind other people without trying to be the lead, which are two different skills for a musician. But I kind of learned these at the same time. This is also how I learned how to play harmonica and guitar and played multiple instruments at one time, was to be able to think about music in two different ways. But when I was about 18, I got invited uh, to a show that uh, of Dave Van Ronk, actually. Mm. And that was in October of 2001. And I had heard he was a big influence on Bob Dylan, and I was interested in his music so I picked up a record and it was a beautiful double out al album um, of Dave Van Ronk's music it was the album folk singer and um, inside Dave Van Ronk uh, beautiful uh, repackaging and when I heard his music I was just from the moment I heard Samson and Delilah I was I was done I just I just loved Dave Van Ronk's music in addition to Bob Dylan's music I was also into the music of Spider John Kerner I was also into the music of Brownie McGee and Sonny Terry and Lead Belly and I started to just try to figure out ways to mix and match their styles, and I was doing that for, for years. And it all kind of came together when I saw Dave Van Ronk, because he, he, uh, his show was set up in such a way that he would, he would tell anecdotes between the songs he played. And so I kept that, uh, that uh, format in my show uh, from the moment I watched him, because... As someone who never had a chance to see Mississippi John Hurt, just to hear Dave Van Ronk talk about Mississippi John Hurt was a, a great education for me. Mm -hmm. And it just was a, it was a beautiful moment. And then, of course, uh, Dave Van Ronk passed away in February of 2002. And so he passed away six months after I saw him. So I saw one of his last performances ever. And as a fan of the music from afar, I, I found that I was, uh, I was emboldened to try and keep the spirit of the old folk singers alive. But of course, being from Arizona, there were these... I had the same thing that a lot of the 60s folk singers had with the musicians of the 20s and 30s. There were these faraway musicians in a place called New England that started a revolution. I heard their music, I learned their songs, I learned their stories, and then... In 2005, I was invited to an event called the Black Banjo Gathering, and I then became a part of the community of folk music. And so I went to Appalachian State University. The event was on the African, Caribbean, and African-American roots of the banjo. And by that point, I had started playing the four-string banjo, and I just um, thought that I should be a part of it. I saw that Mike Seeger was going to be there, as well as a wonderful blues singer, Aljamay Hinton, who uh, recorded for the Music Maker Relief Foundation, who I still work with to this day. Right. And I, I just start, and, and then uh, I actually, at the event too, I met Bela Fleck, 
and uh, Bela was telling everybody about how he had just come back from Africa and he had some amazing tapes that he had collected but of course it would later be called throw down your heart but at that time it was just I went to Africa it was amazing and then I got to see him jam with Sheka Malajibate the wonderful Ngone player and that just blew my mind too again banjo music turned into something far beyond um, Flatten Scruggs, which is what I had heard and had wanted to play. Flatten Scruggs or Dixieland banjo, like Preservation Hall, uh, it turned into a uh, vernacular journey into African American history. And I found that that's why I wanted to become a professional. When I found that I could expand that scholarship, that that is what changed everything in 2005 for me. Explain that. Expand that scholarship. So this is bas- because you're basically a student of music, right? Yeah, well, and also a teacher of music. Absolutely. Well, you know, and the teacher, is, of course, is always learning new information. And at the time that I went to the Black Banjo Gathering, a lot of the major folk scholarship had sort of ended toward the late 1970s. That was the last time you had a lot of the quintessential scholarship. But in 2005, you were having a new round of interest and enthusiasm for roots music from Again, from the popular sects of music, uh, you know, you had like, oh, Brother Art Thou coming out, and then you had popular singers bringing more rootsy sounds into their recordings, whether they were legacy or they're newer artists. And, of course, I, I work with Old Crow Medicine Show a lot now, but back in 2004, I heard them, I heard their major label album, OCMS, and I was really drawn to the sound of Tell It To Me because it was the first time I'd heard anybody do 20s and 30s stuff on a major label. And for me, that, that, that empowered me to think that there was a chance uh, in music because there was interest in this type of music. And then, of course, Wagon Wheel, of course, being another wonderful one. I was being a big fan of Bob Dylan. I, I had that, that bootleg, Peco's Blues, which are the outtakes from Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid's soundtrack. And so <laughs> I was also really pleased to hear someone actually take that small fragment and turn it into a song. And, of course, the song is, it's gone everywhere, like... Um, Sort of like the other song Dylan wrote from that album, "Knocking on Heaven's Door." It's a it's a it's a masterful chorus that is repeated wherever you go. <laughs> and so, so for me, you know, in 2005, the idea of African American string bands, uh, the scholarship literally had only a small footnote in the prehistory of the blues. And as I began to go to the gathering, I was more a blues fan, more so, more so than a old-time fiddle and banjo music scholar. And so I noticed a lot of cross-sections that made sense when it came to early country blues musicians like Charlie Patton, Lead Billy, uh, people like Henry Ragtime, Texas Thomas, and Mance Lipscomb, who was also a string band musician. I started to think about those things when I heard the fiddle and banjo music of someone like Joe Thompson, who would have a profound effect on my life when I heard him for the very first time. And I remember seeing him play Steel Driving Man with Bob Carlin playing with him on the banjo. And I just remember that I was transported. I started to understand that the songsters and people like Henry Thomas, they were not the exception to the rule as it would be sort of depicted within the realm of the blues. But it was more of... That blues was more of the exception to the rule, but it was the style of music that was recorded and documented much more thoroughly. And string band music was a much broader world of African-American vernacular folk music. So that transformed me just by seeing Joe Thompson perform. And that, that made me uh, sell everything I owned. A month after I left the gathering, I sold everything I owned, left Arizona, and, and drove in my car across the country to North Carolina to find the music to search it out and to document it as best as I could. Okay, so before that, I know you went to school for English, correct? I did. Did you have an idea what you wanted to do, or did you always think music was a possibility? I always wondered if music would be a possibility. I enjoyed playing music, and I did small gigs in coffee houses. I'd bust on the streets, and I played in you know, for four or five years gigging, uh, just casually on the weekends. But I didn't think I could become a professional just by playing my music alone. At least I didn't feel at that time. It just seemed like traditional music wasn't as popular in terms of what people were listening to on the radio. But I also was in Arizona, and I had no 
uh, gauge or reference for the folk music communities of the East Coast. I had only read about them. So when I began to go to the East Coast, I started to find coffee houses and full folk music circuits that could accommodate uh, doing music professionally. Up to that point, I just wasn't sure if I would have been able to do that in Arizona. And there just aren't a lot of venues or gigs that could accommodate a full living in the way that I, I ended up developing in my career, you know. Uh, and up until that point, was it were you mainly a solo artist? Or did you play in bands? Oh, I, was, I was always a solo artist for the most part. I had occasional times where I played in bands. And for several years, I was in a little uh, sort of a rough rough-and-tumble group called the Wild Whiskey Boys, and I played harmonica with them and sang a few songs, but it, there, weren't, there weren't a lot of people playing the style of music that I was playing, and there weren't a lot of people interested in learning to play the style I played. They liked what I was doing for what I, I did as an individual, but uh, people weren't interested in 78s, particularly in the area that I was... Um, I was hanging around. There was a small community of musicians who I knew that we all shared records and, and listened to music and learned the songs collectively or separately, but there wasn't really a big scene for folk music at all. So when I went out to North Carolina, I saw there was interest in old-time fiddle and banjo music, and also I just got swept up in the spell of North Carolina string band music. I mean, you go up to Boone, North Carolina, and start to, um, when you've heard the recordings of Bascom Lamar Lunsford, and then you go to Western North Carolina and you hear the old-time music that Bascom Lamar Lunsford is referring to, it, it sweeps you up in a magic that is just uh, completely indescribable. And so I was, I was caught up. I had the music bug beforehand, but then when I went to North Carolina, it took full hold of me. And as I finished my degree, I didn't have, I didn't have a notion of where I was going to go after I had my degree. I didn't think I was going to be a teacher or anything like that, but I didn't have anything holding me down. So I thought that the opportunity to go to North Carolina and document the music of Joe Thompson or any of the new folk revival that that might have been developing or happening at that time, that was a righteous deed. And, and being a young man at 23, I just jumped in the car and left. So at 23, and you said you started around 16 or 17. That's correct. Which means that at this point you're like only five, six years into playing guitar or, or playing the instruments that you've learned. How good do you think you were at that point? Like, are you confident about your playing ability? I've always been confident about my playing ability. That's the one thing. Whether I, whether whether it came across at first or not, that was something that again that that was irrelevant to me, because I, I've always also been a performance artist. I've I've been a deep fan of. Uh, of silent film and the visual art of of silent film as as well as um, sort of the iconography of the early French surrealist and impressionist so I I tend to dabble things like that into my live performance art and then I did slam poetry for on my whole time through college and I went to two national uh, poetry slams uh, as a part of the northern Arizona team and so I, I had I had uh, performed in quite a few different ways. I had, I had uh, built up repertoires and and broke them down, built them up again, broke them down five or six times in the in the years leading up to 2005. So I felt f very confident about my abilities going into North Carolina. Before that, I might not have been so confident, but going to North Carolina, I had a good sense of where the chords landed. I had a good sense of how I wanted to approach the music. And then when I w met Renan and Justin, um, I started to see the ways that I could add elements and flavors to the North Carolina Piedmont music that they were playing that would make it uh, interesting and different. Uh, from other types of old-time music that was being played at the scene at that time. So I brought jug band music, fife and drum music. I also brought elements of the blues, ragtime, early jazz. And, and then I uh, picked quite a few numbers uh, from the repertoires that uh, Renan and Justin had, took notes, and then asked them to play those songs when we were first gigging. And then those eventually became the basic repertoire for the Carolina Chocolate Drops. Before we get a little more into the chocolate drops tell me about the poetry slam tell me about what that gave you as an artist and how that helped you as a musician i've always enjoyed poetry even before i played guitar i enjoyed verse rhyme and uh, the structure 
of poetry in any of its forms, whether it be sonnets, whether it be free verse, whether it be prose, or whether it be straight rhyming poetry. And uh, surrealist poetry has always been great for me as well. Um, you know, the really deep analytical poetry has always drawn me in. And so when I started to play guitar, and I started to especially get into the early 60s folk revival and the psychedelic movement of the late 60s, so much of the music is intellectual. And producers like Jack Holzman with Electra Records made a point of making intellectual music. And so I was drawn to those ideas of making intellectual music myself. But when it came to traditional music, you have to think of a song like John Henry or Stack of Lee. When interpreting a song like that, there are different verses that you can use to tell a different story. And that's where each individual artist shows their artistry in, in traditional folk culture. And so for me, I was always wondering about that. When I first heard uh, Hank Williams doing My Bucket's Got a Hole in It, and then second heard Washboard Sam playing My Bucket's Got a Hole in It, and found out that Hank Williams modeled his song after Washboard Sam, I always was interested in that dichotomy. How much blues was Hank listening to when he wasn't on the country radio? How much country was Charlie Parker listening to when he wasn't on the jazz bandstand? And so these sort of ideas as a... A person who's uh, from Arizona who, um, again, I, I, I'm both African-American and Mexican-American by heritage, so I have a very multifaceted family. So when I started to find these stories that featured names in the music business that can't be ignored, I started to pursue those stories. And I started to find all of the information I could, just personally. Again, this wasn't anything anybody asked me to do. So I, be, I was able to confirm and corroborate a lot of... Uh, uh, all of my information that I had wondered about or asked about far earlier than uh, the times that I was in the Carolina Chocolate Drop. So the other part of the group was that I could contextualize the music in a way that um, most artists w were not able to. And especially for African American string band music, for uh, music that was so rare, even in the folk music world where there are so many types of music that have been documented I mean, to death. I mean, again and again and again, African-American string band music was a very new scholarly venture. And so for me and all the original Chocolate Drops, we wanted to advocate for that new movement to create a more diverse picture of what you're seeing in the representation of traditional music. And again, this is before you had... Um, uh, the full digital changeover where everyone had access to me every type of music. Right. Before then, you had schools of thought that didn't really cross over. And so a lot of my career has been showing the crossover points so that now we've had the digital crossover. Now it's not crazy for people to think that a, a, a musician like Leslie Riddle, who influenced the Carter family, also could be connected to the blues singer Brownie McGee. Because for the past... 15 years, I've been telling people that story again and again, as well as a number of other scholars. And so now, it's for me, I've always tried to make sure that, that the scholarship was in the forefront, so that there was, never any, uh, there was never any question when the question was asked. Okay, so for the kid who was in Arizona thinking, I wonder if I could make, or is there a future in this kind of music to joining the Chocolate Drops, did you have an idea of what you want to accomplish with the Carolina Chocolate Drops? Yes, I did. Um, having spent a lot of time thinking about how I wanted to put together a group, if I ever put one together, uh, the, the Carolina Chocolate Drops, I guess um, symbolically what I wanted them to show was I wanted to show them something along the lines of like Brownie McGee and Sonny Terry in a certain way where there was this beautiful uh, uninhibited music where you had very strong individuals pushing those ideas forward. Of course, if you read the history of Brownie McGee and Sonny Terry, they had a lot of animosity over their careers, so that was also a thing I found out later. But nevertheless, um, if, you think of, if you think of that sort of music going into it, I decided to take the, the models I had seen with other acts of the folk revival and I tried to place that within how we structured the chocolate drops because at first we were literally a group of three musicians who had banded around Joe Thompson 
to play his type of string band music. And every Wednesday we sat down and uh, we played Joe Thompson's music and we loved every minute of it. And then we went out at the square dances and we played those for the square dancers and they loved it because it was a different sound. Because Carolina Piedmont music is different than Carolina Mountain string band music. And so mountain music is far more popular and far more well-known than the Piedmont style, which is more akin to Blind Boy Fuller and the bluesier half of North Carolina, which is, again, the, is where the, um, the, the Black Tobacco uh, Laborer District is in Durham and places like that. And, and then living there, I learned all of the regional differences as I began to live in North Carolina. So it, taking the folk revival method, I wanted to create a sepia-toned version of the New Lost City Ramblers combined with uh, a group like Kerner Ray and Glover with uh, Spider John, Dave Ray, and Tony Glover. And then also take a, an aspect of the group, the Kingston Trio, who again, who again it would be, seem like a surprise that I'd reference a group like the Kingston Trio, but the exuberance of the Kingston Trio set them apart from any of the pop folk acts at that time. The exuberance, the fastness, the drive, it's like it's punk rock of folk music for that era, just because they played so hard and fast. You know, like if you listen to something like the Limelighters, they're very much a smooth nightclub act, and Glenn Yarbrough was very smooth. But the Kingston Trio, none of that. It was made for a college audience that, boom, hit you with the rhythm. And so I wanted that aspect to the Carolina Chocolate Drops. And also the, with Kerner and Glover, they were such strong three individuals. I wanted the Chocolate Drops to show the individuals more and have the collective idea happening at the same time. And, of course, it was under the banner of celebrating Joe Thompson's music, which, again, we all thought was a very righteous deed. Um, I, th I think of the Carolina Chocolate Drops, and I, uh, I saw you a few times, and um, I thought of it as a very successful band. Did you see it that way? I did. Did it get to, did it get to the point where you, you thought it could get to or beyond that? I wasn't sure. You know, for me, the goal was never to see how much money or success we could find in that group. My goal was always to create awareness for this amazing type of music and especially in the context of the group it was a very special mixture of music because it was very traditional music and we were the tradition bearers for Joe in this very certain way that was very special for what it was and it was more than just a band in those type of ways but at the same time after a certain point we accomplished everything we set out to do including I mean I remember the first time we pulled out the yellow pad and said we'd like to play at the Grand Ole Opry we want to play at Merle Fest one day and we wrote out a bunch of places that we had always dreamed of playing and we actually did all of those things three four times over in the course of our career because at that time African-American string band music was such a rarity that we um, we came head-on with a movement to include more people of color within traditionally marginalized spaces such as country music and and there had been a lot of movements to uh, show that african-american and white artists in country music and r&b can stand next to each other on stage this is a big movement that uh, has been a part of my whole upbringing but the for African-American performers to do strict traditional music, that was still a fairly new idea, and that we weren't trying to be throwback, we were being very uh, honest and in the present with how we were playing it. It just, it was a very different approach, and um, African-American string band music in its rawest form is also very, uh, can be very shocking, striking, and evocative for, uh, for an audience that may not be familiar with it. It's not bluegrass, but it's also not just in any old type of old time music either and so we all studied and tried to create aesthetic qualities in our playing so that we could show traditional african-american folk music in, in that particular form and so we, we took a lot of time with that and of course with me on my end i then experimented with ideas of what jug band music what uh, what did the the bass notes of lead belly sound like in the in the context of a string band because of course i'd read books and Lead Bailey would talk about how he played uh, with Blind Lemon Jefferson, the blues singer, as a duo for many years. Uh, when you hear the two men perform so separately, it'd be hard to d think about how would they sound together. But in the context of the group, I, I experimented with, with a lot of ideas that took written passages I had 
I had read about and tried to incorporate them and find a musical thread that could create something that was new, but at the same time aesthetically seemed a hundred years old, if not more so. You, you formed the band in 2005, and by 2007, you have your, your, you also do a solo album, right? You, you start. That's correct. So at that point, what's the goal? What's the difference in your goals with what? what the band is doing and what you wanted to do as a solo artist. The band always had to be structured within the string band setting. It always had to be... Because one of the things is I learned how to play uh, early jazz and ragtime and things like that and had a full chord lo- vocabulary when it came to producing songs. But Renan and Justin were definitely within the traditional music uh uh, framework and and in terms of playing uh, guitar and uh, or playing banjo and fiddle, they played old time numbers. But it, they had to they had to learn bigger structures if we wanted to do you know music that was just beyond the string band music. And so uh, also of course Renan has a, a wonderful voice and is uh, classically trained, and so she had that going as well. But when it came to uh, breaking away from the original format of the string band music, it was always a little bit tricky to figure out how we could continue to evolve. So we got to a spot where it just started to get harder and harder to to get our arrangements together. But, you know, of course, we started out as just playing the 12 numbers that Joe Thompson had taught us. So we, we took, it, took it to a couple of different places and some wonderful spots in terms of experimentation. Like um, we did one of Joe's numbers, Ryro's House, as a, as, a, as a fife and drum number, and that came together quite nicely. Um, and then, of course, we, we ended up winning a Grammy through um, uh, the Genuine Negro Jig album, um, because we, that was a lot of our, our, our hits in the stage show, like um, Cornbread and Butterbeans was a song that people loved, as well as Hit em Up Style and Your Baby Ain't Sweet Like Mine. And I think that that album, we really had all of the elements that were a part of our stage show. With Leaving Eden, we got to experiment a little bit more. But again, we, we had covered so many of our goals, it just kind of, we just couldn't find more goals, <laughs> you know? So, so, so what did that win? do to you what did that how did that change you how did that affect you i mean for me personally i was always interested in pursuing more types of music than i did just on stage and i was always reading books finding new recordings making new arrangements of songs writing new songs and a lot of the stuff didn't fit in the format of the group but i always kept it in my back pocket ready to go for the day that i eventually would step out on my own and in the times that i wasn't touring i always felt i was uh, a free agent to record as i needed to and as i started to work with music maker relief foundation of course the chocolate drops did their first several records with music maker but once we went to a major label i decided that it would be important for me to get some of my repertoire down as i as I was traveling, so I recorded two two uh, albums, Dance Tunes, Ballads, and Blues, and American Songster, which was the album that I later would turn into my own moniker. Right. Um, was it difficult to leave the band? In one way it was. In another way, like I said before, the goals were no longer the same. Right. And I just don't think we could have kept on the way we were in that format, just because we had very different goals and at the end of the day i found that i was still more interested in creating more awareness about the history and also continuing to play the old time styles because the music is so rare that people don't realize that it's it's a special type of music that can move you and it can change you and it can transport you into another time and place and i felt that the group was moving away from that in one way so i just um I just, after a while, decided I'm just going to go back and, and pursue the types of music that I've always enjoyed and also break into some types of music that might have been too conservative for the groups, um, getting into early rock and roll and getting into deeper fife and drum music and then also experimenting in the studio in a way um, that's similar to uh, bebop jazz, which is something I've always been into. I, I always felt like Every recording session with the with the chocolate drops, we were always in a a location, and I decided when I did my album Prospect Hill, I wanted to just take that out of the out of the picture. I wanted to do a working man studio, so I got Sound Pure Studios in Durham, and I just did a real straight ahead 
recording session where I did all the pre-production and I wanted it to be like a greatest hits record in a sort of way. So I covered every style that, that fits the basic repertoire of my entire musical existence. And so for me, it was, um, it was all an evolution that I did at the same time. And I, and I lived two lives as both working in the group as well as doing my own solo stuff, as well as collaborating on other people's projects as well if they called me. Because I've always taken Roy Acuff's approach, um, which is old time music, anytime, anywhere. And if um, I got the time and, and we can make it happen, I usually say yes. And I've done that for many years, not asking for a dime. I know that you had established your solo career before you left the band for good. But did you know when you went that you would, well, sorry, when you left, that you would have a, your audience base already there? I wasn't sure about that. Because at the time, you know, for me, we had done so much in the nine years. I, but I just, I just was, I, there, was a, there was something in the air that made me say that I just wanted to handle my music in a different way. I just, right. I just couldn't, I couldn't stay exactly the way we had developed over time. And it, it, for me, it became a completely different situation than what I had come out to do originally. And... Yeah, I just, I just eventually, it was a very hard decision to do it. It, was, it wasn't easy, no. you know, because, of, of course, as someone who's a scholar of the music, I know that if you leave a successful group, that's also a very, um, a very tough decision, and it can be a hard road. But um, from 2014, I, I partnered up with Music Maker Relief Foundation, and, and we put together um, the album Prospect Hill originally, and... I've just uh, hit the road ever since, and, and I've put about 100,000 miles in uh, presenting the music that I, I've carefully curated and have put together, and my, you know, right leaving the group, I had two projects in mind, what would be Prospect Hill and then Black Cowboys, because also Black Cowboys was something I had started studying back in 2008 when I went to visit my family years ago in Arizona. And it just sat on the shelf. It just continued to sit on the shelf, and I hadn't figured out a way to develop it. And when I decided to leave the group, that was when I decided I wanted to put the album together. Because I can you yeah talk about the talk about the Black Cowboys. The I mean, what was that project that you wanted to share? Well, that the project Black Cowboys originated back when I was visiting my family. I after a while on tour, I had gotten into the habit of visiting my family for Christmas, which I still try to do every year. And I was at the Painted Desert uh, National Monument over in New Mexico, and I found a copy of the book The Negro Cowboys, which was one of the first scholarly uh, books to speak about African-American cowboys and their role in the history of the West. And this book just changed my life. I, it, being being of African-American and Mexican-American descent, being from Phoenix, Arizona, there were a lot of stories I had never heard before. And I, again, became empowered to think that somehow I could tell a bit of my own heritage through this story. Because as a person from Phoenix, a lot of the African-American history is based in the uh, in the Deep South, and a lot of the big manifestos were created in Mississippi and Alabama. And, of course, the West Coast has its own history, uh, particularly in the Black Power Movement. But there's a, there's a deeper cultural history that goes even farther back that's just based around westward migration. And I had a lot of stories in my own family history about these things, but I hadn't ever seen a lot of books on the subject. So I, I saw that book, and shortly after I found a William Lauren Katz book, Black Indians, which is about African-American and Native American uh, cultures and the places that they met in uh, different parts of uh, the United States history. And then I found a CD called Black Texicans, which uh, was a compilation dedicated to John A. Lomax's recordings of the early black cowboy singers that he met, whether they were in the prisons in Texas or whether they were out on the range. And they, there's a beautiful passage from Alan Lomax, his son, the great folklorist, where he mentions that this album is the only documentation we have of the very vibrant black cowboy singing tradition that used to be very prevalent in the West. And he just has this beautiful passage saying that he and his father got to see the last, um, the last piece of this musical culture in their lifetimes, and then they saw it go away as um, modernization came in in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. 
And so I just took those different resources and I started to think how neat it would be to make an album that was appealing like other cowboy albums I loved like Marty Robbins' Gunfighter Ballads and Trail Songs and make a black cowboy's version of that, whatever it would be. Because also at the that same time, uh, Django Unchained had come out, The Hateful Eight had come out, and also The New Magnificent Seven came out right before the album came out. It also it seemed like something that was very timely in a certain way because it, it gives a different impression of African-American culture when you look through the lens of black Western culture. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that that notion was so powerful. But again, it sat on the shelf for a decade before I actually turned it into a record. And once I did, I, I until I was able to link together with Smithsonian Folkways, I was able to pitch it to them as a package. And they were, thankfully, they, they saw the vision I saw. Um, in being able to link it together with the National Museum of African American History and Culture and make Black Cowboys something that's a definitive statement uh, on the national level. And that's something that I'm just so proud of. But it was it was a long process trying to get the information and then write it and then write it again and then make it something that people would actually want to read, which was 40 pages, which again took a year and a half. Do you see it going further, this project? Oh, yes, of course. I mean, the the thing about the story of Black Cowboys is it opens up 400 more years. If we take the, the, the 1619 idea, add 400 more years of pre-United States Black Western culture that goes back to ancient times, and that's this story can go that far. Mm-hmm. And um, as we've seen also, the story can go far, far into the future and into the present more so than the 1880s and 1890s up to the 50s and 60s that I kind of focused on we've seen that there are more than enough people from rural cultures that are African American people that recognize black cowboys as an idea and a phenomenon and so that's something as well that uh, for me project wise I didn't try to control black cowboys or or make it a a thing that I could own you know what I mean yeah yeah um, but it was something that again I made it so it would reverberate so that uh, any other person and again every every African American person has a story of black cowboys somewhere in their family whether it's ancestral it's present or whether it's a peripheral thing like and again uh, the West can be the literal West like Arizona or it can be the imagined West. I mean, cowboys, if you just put a cowboy hat on, you're a cowboy in, in American culture, you know? Yeah, yeah. And people do, people do it all the time. But I tried to do the folk cowboy history. And then what I found as a reverberation, everybody put a cowboy hat on last year in 2019. And I just thought it was the best thing that could ever happen because that means that the original stories inspired American culture again like they did back in the 1890s when um, the original black cowboys were out there. So again, uh, you know, it's a sort of an interesting um, juxtaposition of a lot of ideas. And then, of course, you put the idea out and you kind of see what happens. Where does it go? And then also... You know, you hope that people are enriched by the experience of the of the scholarship too. You mentioned the Music Makers Relief Foundation a couple of times. Tell me about that. Tell me a little bit about that foundation. I've served on the board of Music Maker Relief Foundation since 2009, and Music Maker is a nonprofit organization that helps out traditional Southern blues artists. And Timothy Duffy, he got a degree in folklore at UNC Chapel Hill. And in the course of his research, he realized that one of the, I guess, one of the big faults of folklore documentation at times is that it doesn't allow for the subject, the person that you are learning the stories from, to have a continued relationship with the institutions that they are giving their information freely to, you know. And again, these can this can be done in good ways and in bad ways. But Tim, he really wanted to build an idea around giving a hand up and not a hand out to traditional players, where you have a lot of situations where many of these players they are living they are living in such a state of poverty. Some of them that they have to choose between food and their instrument. And so they have to pawn the instrument to get the food. Or if they're older, they have to pawn the food to get the medicine. 
and music makers built around the idea of giving a hand up by sh- by giving small stipends uh, in the sustenance program to help musicians be able to lift up just enough so that they can continue to make the music that enriches their community because the idea of a community music maker is such a strong notion when it's active but people don't know when it's not there at all but they they just know that something's missing from their lives and so music makers built on this model and that case by case they figure out how they can help in whatever way and um I got to first hear them uh, back in around 2003 I picked up a copy of um uh, Honey Babe by Aljamay Hinton, who I mentioned I met several years later at the Black Banjo Gathering. Mm-hmm. And I began to uh, find the Music Maker albums that had come out um, years ago on cello records. I found a, a Bull Durham Blues by John D. Holman and Sugar, uh, Sugar Man by Cootie Stark and Down in the South by Guitar Gabriel and Neil Patman's Prison Blues. These were all in my public library. And... Um, so I just loved that, loved the music, and the creative consultant was Taj Mahal. So I also knew that Taj approved, and I was a fan of Taj Mahal too. So it was, um, I just uh, followed their music just by the releases. And so fast forward to 2006, I meet Tim at a festival right before the Chocolate Drops uh, started to do music full time. And he and I started to chat, and he was surprised to know that I knew his albums. And I told him I really appreciated his work, and I wanted to work with him in some regard. Also knowing that we were working with Joe Thompson, I was hoping that Joe Thompson could get a record. And of course, The Chocolate Drops and Joe Thompson, we made one record with him uh, with Music Maker Relief Foundation. So from that point on, Tim and I became great friends, and we... Had, we worked together, and Tim helped us out in all of the early years, and then hooked us up with um, uh, a business infrastructure. We we didn't have an infrastructure before we met Music Maker, and Music Maker, knowing that we were younger artists, helped us understand what a bit an infrastructure would look like, and then allowed us to build it as we desired to, which was something I, I um, of course, am eternally grateful for. And then fast forward years later. Uh, as I was leaving the group um, around that time, uh, Timothy Duffy had, uh, he actually, um, he was finding that he didn't want to do records as much as, um, as do photography, which is, has always been a big part of Music Maker's um, mission in terms of the art, is to show visually how these blues singers live and, and the beauty of their music. And for me, it was a, it was an interesting situation where, um, Tim started getting deep into tintype photography. Um, I had gotten to know a fellow by the name of Bill Steber, uh, who's a great photographer who actually did uh, some tintypes for the Leaving Eden album uh, with the chocolate drops. And Tim just got really interested in in doing his own tintypes. And so it was really amazing to see Tim take it to a whole other level. And since I was around in North Carolina at that time, I decided... I decided to just swing by every time they were doing a session. So uh, I have a, a collection of over 150 tin types of different types of things, um, whether it's a remakes of old timey tin types or uh, whether it's a um, you know uh, some of the pictures like um, the cover of the new version of Prospect Hill on Omnivore Records. That uh, that one we were actually documenting uh, my guitar tricks in which I throw my guitar up and swing it under my leg and stuff like that. And that's actually one of the pictures of me swinging the guitar halfway. So it kind of is in front of my face. And so we had to, we had to, you know, time the, the tintype camera so that it would catch my uh, movement. So it took us about 12 of them to get five that looked like a full circular wheel. And so I was glad that uh, Omnivore used one of those. uh, So it kind of has a really neat, sort of look like almost like I'm throwing the guitar because I actually am. <laughs> I need to wrap this up. But tell me what you're working on now because you're always working on stuff. Yeah, I'm always working on something. The The two things that have been most recent have uh, have been a single that I did with my good friend Rev Payton right. um, and his group Big Damn Band. And it's a remake of Elmore James's uh, classic song, Shake Your Money Maker. I had the great fortune of co-hosting the Blues Hall of Fame Awards, and uh, 
it was a beautiful jam that at the end of the awards ceremony where everybody was playing Shake Your Money Maker, and I looked over at Rev and Steve Cropper and said, we have got to make this record. So that was how that started, and we got to go into Sun Studios in Memphis, Tennessee, and, and get a little bit of that beautiful sound coming out of the speakers. And uh, the second thing, which is actually um, kind of came out of a surprise, I guest starred on a record from a country artist by the name of Tyler Childers, and the album is called Long Violent History, and it's a beautiful little old-timey record that he put together. And I just played a six-string banjo, harmonica, and and uh, also a jug on on this record. So there's some really great tracks on that one. Dom, thank you so much for doing this. We've we've crossed paths a number of times over the years, and you've always been very kind to me. And I really appreciate you being so accessible. Thanks for doing this. Of course, it's my pleasure, and I, I thank you so much for keeping up over the years, you know, like, because for me, too, being a fan of, again, being a fan of, like, reporting of, uh, of all the early music days, I'm glad that I'm finally getting to a spot where I have some history with people, because, um, you know, I think about people like, I don't know, like Jan Werner and mm -hmm. John Lennon or something like that, they kept a long relationship over the years, and, you know, it's, it, I, I'm the one who tends to buy those collector's items where it's like, you know, John Lennon's interviews over 30 years and I just just to you know even for me I, I know stuff but there's stuff I said that I you know, <laughs> you never know what you forgot that you said you know <laughs> or how you phrased it you know for sure well thank you and um, hopefully we will see each other in person sometime soon absolutely such a pleasure to hear from you take care thank you Michael.